welcome to security, cryptography, whatever. I'm Deirdre. I'm David. And we have a special guest today. We have Professor Douglas Stabilo with us today. Hi, Douglas. Good morning. Good morning. Douglas is very rapidly uh, agreed to join us after a new announcement from Apple about a post-quantum security upgrade to iMessage. And not just a post-quantum security message uh, to upgrade to iMessage, but a whole bunch of upgrades to their iMessage protocol that have been updated in other secure messaging protocols. And now, like, Apple is just sort of rushing ahead of everybody on a whole bunch of fronts, and it's pretty interesting. We've invited Douglas to join us because he wrote a security analysis that Apple published as part of their announcement. And... He was the first one to say, yes, I can jump on a call with you for an hour. For the record, we reached out to some people at Apple and they did not get back to us. So Douglas wins. Uh, so Douglas, can you tell us a little bit about one, iMessage, and two, the changes that Apple has made to iMessage that you analyzed? Yeah, so iMessage is Apple's you know, very large scale consumer instant messaging app um, and provides end-to-end -end encryption. Um, and so the uh, announcement on this week talked about their addition of post-quantum cryptography to iMessage. And so the cryptographic structure of the, the protocol that they announced is that it has a handshake um, and then a kind of double ratchet structure similar to we're familiar with in Signal. Mm -hmm. And so whereas it had been previously using Diffie-Hellman key exchange, uh, in the initial handshake and the uh, asymmetric ratchet, the lift to curve Diffie-Hellman key exchange, mm -hmm. um, they've now added uh, post-quantum chems there, specifically uh, ML chem. And so they're using, I made sure to double check because in a couple, the post and the two papers, they had said different things in different places about whether they were using Kyber or ML chem. And some, some people have basically confirmed it's all ML chem. They just, you know... I have a feeling they were working on this for a while. And so like they started with Kyber and then they moved to MLCAM because every, that seems to be the case for a lot of parties. But anyway, they're using MLCAM 1024 for their like their post-quantum upgrades to their like device keys or identity keys for part of the session initials uh, handshake. And then one of the big things is they are including MLCAM 768 keys Every so often when they do the ratcheting during the, the ongoing back and forth messaging conversation. And one thing that's interesting is, one, Signal made a uh, post-quantum upgrade recently, but just to their conversation setup handshake, not ongoing post-quantum updates to the ratcheting. Um, and no one else has done any post-quantum updates to their ratcheting like this of any similar conversation that I've seen before, uh, any sort of end-to-end -end messaging conversation. Apple is the first, but they're only doing it, if I'm correct, every 50 messages or at least every seven days. I think they have a more complicated heuristic under the hood, but it, it those are kind of the bounds of that heuristic. And they said that they're only doing that only that often because these ML chem keys are so large on the wire and they just can't afford it. Can you tell a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right, Deirdre. So, uh, you know, ML chem keys are, you know, a couple, uh, well, a key exchange with ML chem is a, is a couple of kilobytes of communication, whereas with uh, ECDH, 
Uh, you know, we're looking at 32 or 64 bytes. Uh, so there's a pretty big uh, increase there. And uh, so you have to kind of make a decision whether you want to pay that um, two kilobyte cost <laughs> on every round trip that you do. And for chat messages where the message itself could be, you know, a two character emoji or something, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty substantial overhead. So it's a choice to make. Um, and yeah, so what you described is is my understanding that there's uh, an amortization, basically, that they'll send uh, the post during the asymmetric ratchet, they'll send ML chem keys periodically. And uh, I think that's a tunable parameter that okay. they're able to adjust uh, over time. But the the in the in the setup right now, what they've said is that it's yeah every fifty messages or at least every seven days, depending on how frequently the device is being used. Okay, that's pretty interesting. I I would be very unfortunately, Apple has never released us anything like a specification for iMessage. It's all been kind of reverse engineering how it works and having people like you kind of blessed to look inside the curtain and do an analysis and then release the analysis. So it'd be ve- I would be very interested to look at it from like a protocol design perspective or an implementation perspective where that turnable parameter lives and it like how far is it exposed and stuff like that. But anyway, can you tell us a little bit about what you s- looked at to do your security analysis? And for, for those listening, Apple uh, released uh, Douglas's security analysis on their website and we'll link to that in our show notes. And this is a straightforward like... I'm a cryptographer. I'm modeling this as a security game. Uh, this is like game-based proofs. This is not some of the um, computer-aided cryptography proofs that we've talked about on this podcast recently. This is bread and butter. I'm sitting down. I'm using my brain and I'm drawing up some security proofs sort of analysis. Can you tell us a little bit how you approached it? Sure. So Apple gave me kind of their version of the the design document and the protocol uh, description. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I kind of translated that to the the format that I understand, you know, uh, pseudocode in a paper in LaTeX. Um, and so that's what's in the security analysis uh, that I wrote for them that they released. And uh, that's kind of, they re- kind of reviewed that uh, I that the, my interpretation of, of what they gave me was correct. Good. Um, and then uh, I proceeded with the analysis from there. Okay. So deduce security properties that they were trying to achieve, or did they say we are trying to achieve certain security properties, please double check our work or something like that. Yeah, they were very clear from the outset on the security properties that they're aiming for. So, you know, post-compromise security or healing, um, forward secrecy uh, on the, so forward secrecy on both the asymmetric and symmetric ratchets, post-compromise security um, on the asymmetric ratchet, both post-quantum and uh, elliptic curve Mm -hmm. uh, assumptions for that part, and also, uh, you know, confidentiality in the session key establishment. The initial awesome. handshake establishment. So did you have some sort of tunable advantage when the post-compromise security and the forward secrecy stuff was being analyzed, given this heuristic of we're only updating our post-quantum security with these ML chem ratcheting keys every 50 or so or up to seven days, you know, however that is measured in terms of advantage? How did you account for that sort of like... And- it might like when it's literally like if you so the original signal ratcheting double ratchet design is you send a new handshake Diffie Hellman every like I send a message and my partner sends me one back 
if they haven't sent one back to you in a while and you just keep sending them like, I saw this TikTok, I saw this TikTok, I saw this TikTok, that's where the symmetric ratchet comes in and you're not doing uh, the asymmetric ratchet. But when you finally complete an, another back and forth handshake, that's when you do an asymmetric ratchet. So that's a very deterministic way to analyze the post-compromise security and the forward security that the ratchet gives you. How do you analyze the sort of like, maybe it's every 50, maybe it's every seven days, who knows? Like, how do you do that? Right, so <laughs> basically that the model that I kind of gave of the protocol is actually kind of assuming that there's a both ratchets happening, uh, both post-quantum and elliptic curves happening uh, okay. in each step. Oh. And so uh, that kind of simplifies the analysis. Um, okay. Uh, and then if you wanted to leave out one of the components, you could do so and extend the analysis, but the write-up that I have just uh, focuses on both of them happening at once for simplicity. Okay. Both of them happening at once. So did you did you kind of give sort of like a bound on if it at least happens every 50 messages, that means blah, or am I asking the wrong question? <laughs> no. So like basically on the on the asymmetric ratchet, the analysis here is doing a post-quantum and elliptic curve exchange on every oh. um, every step of the asymmetric ratchet. Aha. Uh -huh. Hmm. Interesting. So your sort of analysis is the ideal when this tunable parameter is like cranked up to, we don't care about no stinking badges. Uh, like we're just going to send them all the time. Every time an asymmetric ratchet is appropriate. Right. So it sounds like, strictly speaking, what Apple is deploying, at least right now, and can be tunable later, is strictly below what you have analyzed in the paper. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, because, like, I'm not aware of, like, a nice uh, measurable advantage of an adversary of, like, oh, we only do ratcheting every 50 handshakes, and we only do ratcheting, and it could be somewhere between 50 and, like, a million, like whatever. So I was very curious if you had like pioneered a new sort of analysis or something like that. But that makes it a lot more obvious. Yeah, you could do that. I think you'd have to kind of exchange the, the extend the key exchange model to maybe give the adversary the chance to control uh, how frequent yeah. that, that happens. Okay. Um, and that introduces like a whole lot of extra bookkeeping yeah. and state <laughs> management into the security experiment. Um, but you could do it. Yeah. Okay. By the way, do, how much time did you have to work on this? Um, yeah. So they reached out to me kind of middle of last year to, oh, to start okay. looking at it. Okay. All right. So you had time. <laughs> oh, just curious. One interesting thing is that the setup of the initial handshake has these 1024-bit MLCAM keys, which are the highest security parameter that's being published by the standard, which is makes sense. If you're going to root your stuff... Sure, why not? This is ostensibly a one-time thing unless you completely reset your session, your chat session or something like that. And then having something, the next step for these ephemeral, uh, for these ratcheting, asymmetric ratcheting keys. One other thing that seems to jump out at me is that they explicitly call out that they're not doing any post-quantum authentication, like signatures in this update. And this chimes with the PQ, uh, the signal PQ uh, extended Diffie-Hellman update that they did. They also have the original signal set up and kind of similar with iMessage is you have an identity key pair or a device key pair that is associated with an identity 
And you can both do that to do Diffie-Hellman, like, you know, curve 25519 Diffie-Hellman. And then you can tweak that key pair and you can sign with it. And so if you're doing, if you're using what Signal uses, which is curve 25519, you can do this transformation and you can use a key pair to do the, the key exchange. And then you can use that same root of key material to sign with ED25519 or something like that uh, signature uh, scheme. Apple uses the same thing. They're doing everything with P256, so it's ECDSA and stuff like that. But they ship their Apple devices with a key pair rooted in hardware. And so I completely understand why they are like, this is extremely valuable. We have a very, very trustworthy root of trust. Unfortunately, we can't go over to TSMC and just be like, just just shove in ML Chem roots of trust at the same time. Like that is way, 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 way years away uh, from them doing that. So they do the session setup. They do their, uh, you know, ECDH part of the session setup with P56. They do their ML Chem session setup with ML Chem 10, uh, 1024. But they're signing with their root of trust key pair for ECDSA. And they don't have an equivalent for the post-quantum stuff. Did I get anything wrong? Does that, does that sound correct? I don't. I don't know about the the hardware, uh, the root of trust stuff, but uh, yeah, you got the protocol description right, as far as I know. Yeah, uh, in their blog post, they were like, they mentioned a couple of places where I'm just sort of like, oh right. So my whole point of describing this is one, they don't have post quantum authentication stuff, which is just understandable. Like it's, it's not a very no you know, one has that. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the guy who has to worry about this for the web PKI and his web browsers. But also that they have invested a lot into uh, hardware optimization of like all of these things that are rooted in their secure enclave implementations, including P fifty six, ECDSA, and you know you know ECDH over P fifty six and stuff like that. And then they have this key material that's rooted in their devices, and they have this whole chain of trusted compute and trusted hardware, but it's all rooted in classical elliptic curve cryptography. And this other stuff, the new stuff is all, I think, all in software, which makes sense. But it's also interesting from like a from a security perspective of like, you've got these layers of like, you've got some real solid root of trust, but it's all classical. And then you're kind of layering on this post-quantum stuff that is all in software. And it kind of chains to this software update mechanism that also is root of trust, but it's all based on classical as well. And this is a little bit outside of your brief, but like, I hope hardware-backed, high-optimized implementations of things like MLCAM will get rolled out eventually. I don't know if they're going to get stamped into the silicon in, you know, TSMC anytime soon. But if those high-efficiency optimized implementations get rolled out, that may have an impact on how frequently you can do the ratcheting, at least at a computational level. The transmission of bytes on the wire, you can't, Apple doesn't have a lot of control about how expensive that is for your battery, how long that takes. But that was just one thing that I kind of noted that like, they mentioned in their post, they have like this scale, they had PQ1, PQ2, and now they're, they're calling this PQ3. And I think PQ4 is where you will have this post-quantum authentication in there. So this is me just talking. I don't have a question here. I'm sorry. But to actually ask you a question, 
In your analysis, did you look at the lack of post-quantum secure authentication as it impacted the protocol or not? No. So that was kind of outside the brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the design criteria were for post-quantum confidentiality, uh, but not post-quantum authentication. So like, I think you speak to a lot of reasons why adopters are you know, doing post-quantum confidentiality first. I think your example on the, the, the whole hardware stack and and Roots of Trust kind of speaks to the magnitude of this transition. Yeah. That there's so many different pieces that have to come into play. And even, you know, a company that, you know, controls a large part of its stack uh, still has to take its time to get all those pieces uh, in place. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, obviously as well, you know, post-quantum signature schemes are still developing a bit more than post-quantum chems yeah. are with the the continued... NIST uh, signature scheme on ramp. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the, the the need is maybe a little bit less pressing as well because we don't have the the same threat of store now decrypt later attacks that we uh, on authentication. That, yeah. That just doesn't make sense. Definitely. Um, like completely understand. You know, it is a problem that we will eventually have to solve, and none of like all of our options at the moment don't seem very attractive and yet we will eventually have to solve it and we're not it's not that we're putting it off it's just that we get to focus on like we've got some chems all right we we have a tool set that we're all right with we have a very pressing like at currently facing us problem because you can store everything that we're putting on the wire now and have been for years and then just like theoretically rifle through it when you've got a cryptographically relevant quantum computer come online and just like just point it at you know your favorite thing and you're done but it's not gonna the problem doesn't go away anytime soon so okay some of the other cool things that i'm gonna ask you about and i don't know if you actually have anything to say about them but i'm gonna ask you anyway um one of the things that has been a topic for people in the area like myself is how you do hybrid combinations or whatever you want to call it for these shared secrets or chem combiners or whatever whatever you're combining. So in this case, this whole protocol is not a fully PQ protocol. This is a hybrid design because they're keeping all the sort of elliptic curve based stuff that we that we talked about and adding this hybrid stuff, this sorry, post quantum stuff onto it. If it was just all post-quantum asymmetric primitives, we would just call it, call it fully PQ. But technically, this is hybrid. And so when you're doing this hybrid stuff, you kind of got a range of options about how to smush the things together. Can you tell us a little bit about how they are combining the shared secret key agreement from classical and the shared secret key agreement from the post-quantum stuff and smushing it together and getting security out of it? Right. So in the iMessage PQ3 protocol, there, especially like let's focus on, say, the asymmetric ratchet. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of three pieces of input keying material or up to three pieces of input keying material. There is the, the chaining key from your previous stage or from the initial handshake. Mm-hmm. There is a new ephemeral Diffie-Hellman uh, shared secret. And there is a pot- potentially a new... Uh, ML Chem uh, post quantum shared secret, mm-hmm. um, and so from those three pieces of input keying material, we want to derive a new chaining key, and and from which we can uh, derive the next stages and and the next message keys. So the approach that uh, they used was to kind of use HKDF extract, mm-hmm. um, which is really just HMAC, a two input function, 
to smash those together. So they put one piece of keying material in the HMAC uh, key input and the other piece of H uh, keying material in the HMAC uh, message input. Mm-hmm. And so they do that uh, once to accumulate together the chaining key and the ECDH shared secret, and then another time to accumulate that intermediate value with the post-quantum shared secret. Mm-hmm. And then from that result, uh, then you apply HMAC, uh, HKDF expand as a PRF to expand out uh, a bunch of keys from there. And in the HKDF expand slot, in the label, they have a ton of session contextual transcript material. And we love this. <laughs> if you can afford to do it, if it's, if it's computationally uh, affordable to you, just shoving everything public in your session handscript, hands to handshake transcript in there is just like, we love that. And we love that because it means that you can't, you get the session independent stuff. No one can like swap a doodle your, you know, encapsulated share secret for another one. And like, you know, if all these nice things come out of just shoving all that stuff in there. So I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of, uh, I'm, I'm of the philosophy to hash everything in if you can. So I was yeah. glad, glad to see that. I think in key exchange protocols, there is this trend for a bit of time trying to to be clever and leave things out. Um, and you can prove security, um, yeah. but it's a little bit more fragile, right? And you have to be careful and make sure you're, you know, if you change something or you move to a different model or a different primitive, you, you have to make sure that it really goes through properly. Whereas if you hash everything in, you're, you're, there's less risk. Yes. When we weren't sure if they were using Kyber, if they were using MLCAM, they are using MLCAM, oh. blah, 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 This would be quite relevant is that if you are changing the CAM you use later because different CAMs have different binding properties to their encapsulation key, to the ciphertext, to, you know, yada, 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 about like how much guarantee you get from the shared secret that comes out the backside of your CAM and how closely it's like, Ah, uh, you cannot get this value if you use a different public key or if you use a different cipher to or have a different cipher text. So the fact that they're binding all of the stuff into their KDF means that that doesn't matter, that they have a lot more ability to swap those chems out because they're literally committing to everything related to that chem. And so it doesn't matter. They can change things around uh, in a much more agile way, which seems to be a bit of a it's agile, crypto agility is coming back, but in a different context. It's it's kind of breaking my brain. Are they committing to the like actual algorithm used um, somewhere, like feeding in the name of? Gosh, let's see where it's moved up here because it's used several times. Uh, the chems we've and got someone. ID, we've got the label for the ratchet, we've got the public key, the elliptic curve public key, we've got the the post quantum ciphertext, the post quantum public key. I think they are. Because they're committing to a bunch of identifying material, not just the key material. But I need to go double check anyway. I would be surprised if they weren't. Um, One interesting thing about this kind of nested HMAC KDF that they've put together, they call it KDF RKCK because it is uh, the whole KDF they've designed. They take... The sort of root key, if you have a root key, uh, you have this uh, elliptic curve shared secret, you've got the the chem shared secret, and you've got all this contextual session information. They call it SID. And then you do this computation on the inside and it spits out your 
RK and your CK, and those are the two different ratchet keys. Is that what those are? Yeah, so the root key is the one that continues on the asymmetric okay. uh, ratchet, and the CK is the one that's fed down into the uh, symmetric ratchet. Awesome. Okay. This is an interesting approach because I've seen a lot of different approaches of how you take two different uh, secrets and you throw them through a KDS and then you just have a value out the end and then you either just split it down the middle and use like the first, you know, half of the bytes for some other purpose and then half of the bytes for another purpose and you might shove those through more KDFs or something like that. This one is my first naive approach to doing something like this is I would concatenate all this information together your chem shared secret, your elliptic curve to Hellman shared secret, your, your session information, your, your transcript information, concat it all together and shove it through HKDF, which is what they use internally. They didn't do that. Do you have any notions about why they didn't do it that way and they did it this way instead? So I don't you know, have insight from, from their side. Um, I mean, we see this pattern elsewhere. So the TLS 1.3 key schedule kind of also combines, you know, the pre-shared key with the Diffie-Hellman uh, shared secret using two arguments of HKDF extract. So we've seen this design pattern before. Okay. So I have thought about this a bit. Um, and when you, when you do it this way, it allows you to model HKDF as a dual PRF. Yeah. Um, so you really have a two-input function and you're asking it to be a PRF in its two kind of distinct inputs. Um, and... There's subsequently been, you know, some security analysis specifically of the dual PRF property of HMAC. There's a crypto 2023 paper mm-hmm. by uh, Backendahl, Bellare, Gunther, and Scarlata. So that's a very kind of well-defined specific property you're making of, uh, assumption you're making of HMAC. Mm-hmm. Whereas concatenate and just hash, I mean, if you're in the random Oracle model, then great. You know, right. It's, it's fine. But <laughs> otherwise, you're less clear on where... The different parts of the the secret are in the hash function input, huh. um, whether it's going across a block boundary. It, it feels like you know, you're being a little bit less specific on on that, and you're making a variable length assumption as well on on kind of where the secret stuff is within the input. That's interesting because uh, where I'm a part of a team that's working on a different hybrid chem called X-wing, and part of that is literally concatenating a bunch of stuff together and shoving it through SHA three, but to your point about where is the secret material and the block boundary and all sort of stuff, our team has done very specific analysis about this length of bytes, where the key material is, how many rounds of Kekak inside SHA-3 are being used to parse this material for both performance uh, reasons and for security reasons. This analysis indicates to me that it allows you to use HMAC slash HKDF and HKDF extract and HKDF expand in a slightly level, a slightly higher level of abstraction without having to do oh many, oh how many rounds of the internal cipher block function of this hash function that I'm using as my KDF and how long is my like it allows you to almost achieve a similar thing, but with a nicer, safer to use, higher level of abstraction. Uh neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a higher level of abstraction. I think you still have to really be careful about judging whether HMAC satisfies this. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. uh, it hadn't really gotten very much attention until last year's paper. Yeah. Um, and the last year's paper 
that I mentioned from Crypto 2023, there are a lot of subtleties to it because HMAC does some interesting things like, and I can't remember all the details, but if the key is less than a certain length, then the key is used raw. If the key is longer than a certain length, it's hashed first. And there's a few extra little details in there. So it's it's a subtle analysis and sometimes the lengths do matter. Okay. Um, so so there's a lot to be careful about here in, in how you do uh, you know, the key derivation in, in, in dual PRFs and, and and hybrid combiners. Okay. Uh that's very good to know because there's a discussion about trying to make a draft, about how to do chem, hybrid chem combiners and like recommend it to things like IETF. And I've had that paper on my sort of queue, but then I saw this in the in the Apple thing. And I was like, oh, this is very relevant to my interest. And then I didn't detect that subtlety just from a cursory, just sort of like, ah, oh, this is neat. Like, maybe we'll just, this is another option. Maybe we'll just try it like this. And it's like, okay, there are other subtleties to doing it this way too. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I need to read that. Okay. One thing that I noticed or someone noticed when looking at this protocol uh, update is the lack of deniability in this update to iMessage. If I'm Apple, I don't think they care about deniability, but there are other very similar end-to-end encrypted messaging protocols like Signal that do seem to care about deniability. Can you tell us a little bit about what cryptographic deniability is and why some people care and why apparently Apple and iMessage don't care? So I can tell you what cryptographic deniability is. I can't tell you sure, sure. Uh, uh, what Apple's opinion is on it. Is. So cryptographic deniability is the idea that when you participate in a protocol exchange, that exchange should not produce any kind of output that can be transferred to another party and be used to verify something that occurred during the protocol execution. Mm-hmm. So either... It can't be used to confirm that a particular party said something during a protocol execution or even participated in a protocol execution. And so kind of this dates back uh, at least to the off-the-record messaging protocol, yeah. uh, OTR, which is, you know, in some sense, a, an ancestor to, to many of our chat protocols today. Um, and it, it, it had OTR, uh, OTR had a form of cryptographic deniability because um, the two main things that, that gave it that were that it used Diffie-Hellman for uh, authentication rather than signatures. And then from that shared secret, used Max to authenticate messages. Mm-hmm. And so first off, either because it's, a, it's a, a symmetric key in a Mac, you know, either party could have generated a Mac tag. And so you can't prove that the other person uh, said something. And then there are no signatures. So you, you kind of don't have that as well. And, and OTR, I think, even went so far as to uh, release the Mac keys at the end of the conversation hmm. so that they could really, you know, argue, hey, the key is out there. And in fact, if you download OTR, you get this tool to forge a transcript. So like, <laughs> take it with a huge grain of salt. <laughs> the, for me, we've come so far in like the deployment of end-to-end messaging, end-to-end encrypted messaging protocols in like the world where it's actually deployed by your WhatsApps or Facebooks and honestly, like your your wide scale signals. We've gone so far the other way, away from deniability. For example, Facebook released uh, full support for end-to-end encrypted Facebook messaging chats. It used to be opt-in and now it's on, I think, on by default. And they have like a whole bunch of stuff that allows you to report a message to Facebook and for Facebook to to authenticate 
that Facebook sent that message that was end-to-end encrypted, that they sent it, they couldn't read it, but now you are reporting the decrypted message and, you know, a tag that was on the encrypted message to Facebook to be like, someone's being a dick to me or harassing me on Facebook Messenger. I'm reporting them to you. And Facebook needs has very explicitly put extra cryptographically safe, but extra stuff in here that's like the opposite of deniability. It's someone sent something and we Facebook ferried it from point A to point B and someone received it and decrypted it. And now we are able to check all of those things. Does anyone, who wants deniability except cypherpunks? <laughs> I desperately want to see deniability oh, tested God, in court yeah, at some yeah. point. Like, I want a court case that like has an OT, a forged OTR. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've wondered about that too. And like, th- th- there are a couple things that I thought of that I wanted to mention about yeah. this. So there is this talk last year at RWC um, on deniability in messaging and like, we have this notion of cryptographic deniability, but like, what does it mean in the real world? And and is it actually promised uh, in the real world, even if you have a deniable protocol uh, signal or OTR? Yeah. So this paper by Collins, Colombo, and Huguenin Dumatin. Um, so they argue that like for deniability, you have to consider the the context in which the protocol is running. Right. So so maybe the core chat protocol is deniable. But then it's running in some kind of, there's a separate layer above that authenticates the users to the server or something like that. And so all of that could be undermining cryptographic deniability. And then, as David said, we have no idea how this would play out in a, in a court, right? The legal system has, for centuries, had its own way of assessing credibility of evidence long before digital signatures were a possibility, right? I mean, in fact, there was a paper at SMP last year as well, like touching on this question just a little bit. Um, so some researchers from University of Maryland, they did this study where they uh, had like 600, well, 1,200 users across two 600-user studies where they asked how non-expert users would perceive deniability of chat messages in a courtroom setting. So like, how likely are you to convict if you are told that, if, if a cryptographer comes in and tells you that it's cryptographically deniable, or if... You see that the the chat program includes a function to edit the messages or tamper with screenshots or whatever. So, like, I think we're starting to touch just a tiny bit on like what deniability, cryptographic deniability, really means. But I, I don't know really what it means. <laughs> Okay, Deirdre, we're going to need you to do some crimes and then leave evidence in OTR and then we'll create some forged transcripts and send you well, through the U.S. It. justice system and write a paper about it. <laughs> well, so one other thing on this. So we have seen like court cases where ch- chat messages have been evidence. Um, and I'm thinking, among others, of EncroChat in uh, Europe, which was a, a chat program uh, used by organized crime and so on. And, you know, law enforcement infiltrated this and... Uh, you know, that evidence has been used in convictions and so on. And the chats there contain all kinds of corroborating evidence, like a selfie of someone holding a bag of cocaine or <laughs> like someone. And I think this is true. I, I, someone holding a block of cheese and you can see the fingerprints from their fingers holding the block, like that are in the picture they're holding the block of cheese, right? Oh, so there's wow. <laughs> all this corroborating evidence, regardless of the, the, the metadata of the chat. Oh, boy, yeah. Oh, God. 
I could see someone be like, oh, right, this is like a picture of my passport for backup. And then be like, but the, the transcript is deniable. The trend, like, it's just like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, it kind of reinforces, like, it's a cute cryptographic trick, but I think the uh, end user demand for deniability is, has only decreased over time. But um, it seems funny that um, cryptographers are like, there's no deniability here? Oh, no. And I'm like, why would why would there be? Uh, but actually, on the other hand, Apple might be one of those parties that actually kind of is like, no, like nothing to see here. We're like, we're not gonna like, we care about your privacy. We care like we care about all this sort of stuff. They might have be one of those parties that are like, yes, you cannot. But they're also just a large company. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the EU just to rampantly speculate, the EU does care a lot about trust and safety mm. and deniability and trust and safety um, in general don't mm -hmm. play nice with each other. I know there's nothing in your analysis, Douglas, about the padding uh, that they added to iMessage, which is basically like a privacy win. Uh, I don't know if other messaging protocols have something similar um, or if they're just sort of just doing the maximal padding by default anyway. But basically, this is like another way to avoid a completely different class of attack, which is just sort of like looking at the different sizes of the ciphertext on the wire to get some information about what's actually being encrypted. Um, and so to counteract that, you use this, they call it, this is a, a Padme padding heuristic, which literally makes it so that that information that is being leaked by the size of the ciphertext on the wire is much, much, much smaller. Do you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I can't. I didn't, I didn't I didn't take a look at that. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, basically my focus was on the the key establishment, right? The key exchange, okay, right. Um, not the not the authenticated encryption or, or anything of her message transmission. Okay, sorry. So <laughs> I didn't take a look at Padme, um, but... I'm, I'm, it looks promising. Yes. Uh, this is sort of like yet another thing that is just, iMessage has been a little bit of a, iMessage came out the gate when Apple released it as like a pretty good groundbreaking, or at least for like wide scale messaging protocol, uh, encrypted messaging protocol. It wasn't documented very well, but it was considered pretty good at the time. And then it's been kind of stagnant. People have analyzed it. People have had some breaks. They fixed some breaks and things like that. Signal has like screamed ahead. WhatsApp adapted Signal. WhatsApp's had their own advancements that and like and then Signal has been an influence to a lot of end-to-end -end encryption protocols, not just messaging in a lot of places. And iMessage has just been kind of plateaued, I would say. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> they've got post quantum and they've got more post-quantum stuff than anyone else has. They've got this much better padding for privacy. They've got a whole bunch of stuff going on in here all at once. I don't have a question here, but it's just kind of good. It's good to see because iMessage kind of was a big leader to start. And now they're coming all the way back after being, you know, somewhat quiet for a long time. And it's pretty good to see. Um, and I'm glad that they basically reached out to people like you. And there were some other, uh, there was another team that did a Tamarin analysis and I have to go through their analysis and I want them to release their Tamarin model. I was grepping in their paper for a Git link or something and a, there isn't one. So I have to dig a little bit harder and I would like to, to take a look at that. And someone did an audit of the code. 
they were not named, just that an audit happened. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> but um, that is also good. Oh, and the other thing is a couple of months ago, they announced their contact key verification thing. And that came with key transparency logs. And for us nerds, like this is like a big, big, big thing because I, did WhatsApp do that first or did I forget? Okay, David's nodding at me. I think WhatsApp did similar, a slightly different design, but they did a similar thing first. And basically the contact key verification or key verification stuff is about when we talked about setting up your sessions and you have these long-term keys that might be per device or per identity or, you know, whatever it is. Those are long-term and you really want to know when they change because like you, you have to start your, you know, you have to restart your session and things like that. In the long distant past of, of messaging, encrypted messaging, it was just sort of like, here's a code, here's an encoding of your pub of someone's public key. And maybe you like compare codes to make sure that you're both seeing the same thing and that it was relying on you to check that out of band. So like in the distant, distant past, this might actually involve someone at some data center calling you and be like, read me off the, the hex encoding of your, you know, SSH public key, which I had to do back in the day. And then Signal and WhatsApp literally had like a little QR code and you like do that out of band, blah, blah, blah. So this contact key verif verification stuff and the equivalent WhatsApp one was literally doing it for you. It was WhatsApp or Apple or whom whomever is running the service watches all the public keys that are being verified, has these logs that anyone can check to keep track of the changes of these public keys, and then prompting you, the user, if they notice something is wrong, if they notice a public key being advertised from a party that shouldn't be, because WhatsApp or, or iMessage or whatever knows the trusted public-private or the trusted public keys from trusted devices that it knows. And so it can catch, or any of these logs can catch. It doesn't have to be by the, the service providers, but they are in the most advantageous position to operate this. They will notice if David Adrian's device, which is showing me uh, a hash of a public key that's like one, two, three, four, but the device, the cache of the public key that I'm seeing on my device is actually four, five, six, seven, or something like that. And they will notify me. So that's the whole thing. They did that too. They did that a couple of months too. And basically it seems to be the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was the largest deployment of key transparency logging period because they have so many devices. I think the Apple one was bigger because they just turned it on. I think they only turned it on by default. And the, the WhatsApp one is like slightly smaller for reasons. And I don't remember why. But it's literally billions versus billions. Yeah, I believe that Apple's users times average number of Apple devices is bigger than total number of Maybe. WhatsApp users since it's just one key per user on WhatsApp. That might be it. But yeah, anyway. My understanding is also that Apple launched PQ3 and the key transparency at the same time. And then just being Apple didn't tell people about Didn't they? it. <laughs> no, I think, I think um, key transparency came out in an earlier version of iOS. Yes. Um, 17 two and now we're on and and i think they said post pq3 will come out in seven seventeen four four yeah um so which we're not at yet yeah um uh, although i also was fiddling around with key 
no contact key verification yeah. uh, yesterday. Just uh, oh yeah, and I had to go and turn it on. So I don't know if it is uh, on by default or uh, maybe I just uh, screwed up a setting. But uh, I had to turn it on at least. I think for a- for Apple, this started as high risk users, whatever their official name is for like. You know, if you think you're a high risk target, like turn on all of these features, including uh, contact key verification or whatever. And now they're rolling out contact key verification for basically everybody. But I do think you have to turn it on. And I think in WhatsApp, they have set it up so that it is on by default because they're literally doing the like we're doing all this work on the back end so that only when we give you a prompt or a flag or, you know, whatever, um, you have to do anything or whatever, just not even do anything, just not message somebody or something like that. I think that's what it is. And it may literally just be it's harder for Apple to turn this on by default for so many heterogeneous devices and, and operating systems because they're they're doing this stuff for iOS, iPad OS, Mac OS, Watch OS, blah, 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 blah. They have it. They have a heterogeneous environment. And WhatsApp is just like, we have an app. We, well, they have they have iOS they have an Android app. They have WhatsApp web, which is tightly bound to those other apps. So I think they have an easier time turning it on by default than Apple does. But I wouldn't be surprised if they did eventually. All of those are bound to a single phone number. Though. Like you don't have two instances of your WhatsApp at the same you time. You don't. I have to remember how they handled this, actually, because they I think they they evolved it. You can do web and a phone at the same time, but I don't think you can have two separate phones. I think you might be changing it, but you might be right. But yeah, uh, TLDR, yeah. If anyone with inside knowledge of Apple wants to come on and wear a Max Headroom mask and use a voice changer, we'd be happy to talk uh, to you. We would, we would love if you just like quietly gave us the inside scoop, but I think everyone is like sworn to secrecy by Apple Incorp. But yeah, like TLDR, I'm an iMessage on a wide scale has gone from pretty stagnant like, okay, but it hasn't really changed much in a long time, to changing a lot in about six months, or at least from our public vantage point. The contact key verification was October. This is February. It's been a lot of awesome stuff being rolled out all in one go. It's very cool to see. And they're, they're, they're now at the front of the game in terms of the most post-quantum resistant end-to-end messaging protocol because they're including these post-quantum ratchets not every asymmetric ratchet but at all no one else is doing that right now no one else has deployed that to their users right now so that's awesome i'm trying to think if there's anything else we want to cover douglas (laughs) i looked at uh signals post-quantum extended diffie hellman pretty closely have you looked at that significantly to be able to compare and contrast how iMessage does its post-quantum hybrid session setup versus the signal version. Not the extra ratcheting stuff, just the setup of the session. Right. It's been a while since I looked at it, so I don't remember <laughs> the the full details of how, how how it went. Right. So they have in the in the in the handshake they're doing a post quantum cam. I think they're just doing uh with ephemeral keys. Do they they don't have uh long term identity keys? There. I think they do. So now oh, they na- do. yeah, so now it's the the post quantum variant pre uh, long term key, the post quantum uh pre keys or whatever, and the classical 
long-term keys and the classical pre-keys. And they're all, they're all smushed, smushed up there together, I think. And yeah, all the, all the pre-keys and all, and all that stuff are signed classically with the long-term classical ID keys. Right. So it looks like the PQXDH has a bunch of one-time post-quantum chem pre-keys and then also a, a last resort one. Yes. Um, that they call it if there are no more one-time ones available. Yes. And that, that one time, that last resort may be used repeatedly uh, if they haven't refreshed the other pre-keys. But no uh, identity keys uh, in the post-quantum chem? Um, so in iMessage PQ3, they don't have a long-term ML chem. They just have a strong session setup ML chem. But their ID key is still their, I guess their, you know, hardware rooted elliptic key pair or something like that. Okay. I, uh, I didn't pick up on that. That's cool. And actually, they seem very similar, except for the KDF. Yes, yeah, so it looks like the, the signal PQXDH K derivation function concatenates um, the three or four uh, Diffie-Hellman shared secrets and then also the post-quantum shared secret after that, uh, and then runs that through the key derivation function itself, which is, uh, it says HKDF, mm -hmm. um, and I guess that would mean HKDF extract, and then there's an expand yeah. after that? Yeah, the like standard, just one after the other. And I think the only other kind of note is that Signals uh, extended Diffie-Hellman gives these sort of implicit authentication things to this that I think the iMessage session, session setup doesn't have. So the iMessage session setup is signing a bunch of stuff with their ID key um, or whatever, the, the transformed equivalent of their P256 ID key. Signal does that too, but they're also doing this triple Diffie-Hellman that they've been doing for a long time. So they have a Diffie-Hellman between their ID key and a pre-key and vice versa. So the other party between their ID and the other person's pre-key and then between these two pre-keys as well. And they're doing, it's, those are the triple Diffie-Hellmans, which they have been a part of Signal for a long time. And then they add in this ML chem between these pre-keys for the, for the post-quantum variant. And then they concat those all together and smush them through their KDF. So it's given. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about the authentication properties that these extra Diffie Hellmans give us? Uh, that just they just don't happen to be present in iMessage, and I don't think they ever have been. Right. So in in Signal, the authentication uh, of a session or messages within that session, well, of the session is done using implicitly authenticated key exchange. Right. right. So there are these long term Diffie Hellman keys, and you know we compute a shared secret. And only you and I should be able to compute that shared secret. Um, so no one else has that. That's implicit authentication. Got it. Then from that, you know, if we derive a Mac key or something and we use that, then you subsequently, subsequently explicitly authenticate a message tagged under that right. Mac. Okay. That's kind of the, the main idea from which cryptographic deniability comes from as well. Um, <laughs> whereas in the iMessage protocol, the long-term keys are signing keys not uh, Diffie-Hellman keys, um, and they use them in a signature scheme, not uh, in a key exchange. Mm -hmm. So besides the deniability part, 
why is this attractive beyond signing things with your long-term ID key? Because that's what iMessage has. And that gives us some amount of authentication that we are talking with someone who controls this long-term ID key to start the session. Why is this extra implicit authentication attractive uh, when we already have these signatures over a lot of this stuff um, that is bound to our long-term ID key, for example? So if you're doing implicitly authenticated key exchange with long-term Tiffy Hellman keys, you can do extra combinations, ephemeral with long-term or vice versa. And uh, this can increase the resistance to certain type of compromise attacks. Uh, so there's this uh, security model paper for key exchange called the Extended Kennedy Crosscheck Paper, ECK. And what this model says is that like, so we know forward secrecy, that's like, uh, it should be secure if your long-term key is revealed afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, ah. But in ECK model, and with, with these many combinations, you can also have, you know, security against randomness reveal. Ah, yeah. Um, so if your random number generator is bad or somehow revealed, then if you also did a static Diffie-Hellman and you did those, that static Diffie-Hellman using well-generated, safe static Diffie-Hellman keys, because maybe they're in a, a hardware root of trust or something, then you at least still have that basis of confidentiality, even if all your ephemeral keys were bad. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, because like... I think I knew something about that once upon a time when I first learned about Triple Diffie Hellman or whatever. And I literally was like, why do we, <laughs> why do we do this again? It's like, okay, it's basically, it's not just quote robustness, but it's like different kinds of robustness all throughout the protocol. And it's efficient enough, whether it's efficient enough to throw these big chems on the wire to do the same thing, just to like, I've got my long-term chem key pairs and I've got my ephemeral chems. I'm just shoving like six kilobytes on the wire to do it. We'll see, but thank you. Yeah, and if you're really sensitive with uh, with bandwidth, um, you know, there is one more benefit to doing chem-based authentication rather than signatures is that, you know, post-quantum chems are a little bit smaller than post-quantum signatures. Yeah. So you can save a little bit bandwidth, uh, at least with our current post-quantum chems and our current mm -hmm. post-quantum signatures. You could save a little bit of bandwidth uh, with implicitly authenticated post-quantum key exchange rather than explicitly. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely some protocols that currently really rely on signatures. And I'm I'm taking another look at them and be like, what if all counts? <laughs> Oops, all counts. And I might talk to you more about that later. Douglas Stabila. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for letting us uh, ramble about things that you did not look at at all. But answer, try to answer our questions anyway. Uh, yes, thank, thank you very you. much. <laughs> thank you. Security, cryptography, whatever is a side project from Deirdre Codling, Thomas Tachek, and David Adrian. Our editor is Nettie Smith. You can find the podcast online at scwpod and securitycryptographywhatever.com and the hosts online at Durham Crustalum, at TQBF, and at David Adrian. You can buy merch at merch.securitycryptographywhatever.com. If you like the pod, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your favorite podcast. Thank you for listening.